Hello and welcome, Hugh. How are you? I'm good. I'm excellent. Pleasure uh, to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so for, for some reason, I wrote here that you're a pharmacist, but you're not a pharmacist, are you? Not by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so how did you start your... Um, chemistry, there was no chemistry uh, or... or no chemistry in chemistry. No. The only kind of chemistry I deal with is in terms of my relationship coaching or psychotherapy, so... So, you, you know, chemistry is really important. And, and, you know, for some reason, I mean, for me, I found chemistry really boring in school. Mm-hmm. And yet when I'm with people, there's always a kind of chemistry, so to speak. You know, does it work? Does it not work? Were you that kind of person as well, sort of growing up that you looked um, for chemistry? Very much a people, always a people person. Uh, the youngest of five siblings, so... Um, really social household I was brought up in. So yeah, and around a, and an extremely large peer group as well. So yeah, I think I, I think I've always been a person, uh, a people person, um, not knowing what I wanted to do nece- necessarily as a, as a child in, in, in primary school or secondary school, but always a man of the people with the people. Yeah. And and did you grow up here in the UK or or, or were you elsewhere? Yeah, for my sins, I'm a Londoner through and through. North, south, south. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I that's, mean, that's, I was... with a, that's with a th and not with an f, as we usually say in our unprofessional circles. South London, actually yeah, south, south, south London. Yeah. I spent um, how many years did I spend? I spent four years there. I was in Tuttenbeck. Okay, All right. and uh, I went to Ernest Bevin School, um, which was a you know a pretty rough school at the time, um, back in the. Uh, uh, the early eighties, um, and he, and and he just got on with it. That was the kind of ethos that I had at Pretty the time. Much. That sounds like that sounds like the ethos of the um, the early eighties. Kind of just suck it up and you know crack on. Yeah, yeah. And and when when did you kind of find your way that that you realised that this is what I wanted to do? Pretty late, actually, because I was training in the mid '90s to become a lawyer. Actually, I was in I was in law school, and I found out that I spent an awful lot of time in the psychology section, um, taking out books when I had law assignments to complete, um, and just being fascinated by the whole psychology thing. And on top of that, I used to listen to some. I, I'm going way back now, so back in the mid '90s, these audio tapes from America. And there were these African-American psychologists, um, Naya Makbar, one of them was Wade Nobles, which I heard less of, and also Amos Wilson. Um, but particularly Naya Makbar, there were these, you know, there's just these insightful, very well-organized, very well-constructed arguments and, and, and postulations about psychology and, and healing and transformation. that you should just, I was kind of spellbound by them, you know, like quite gripped. And so eventually... Um, working in a custodial setting um, and I was working uh, in HMP Felton Safeguarding well, were, were nice name Safeguarding but I actually worked on what they called the section of it was Suicide Watch and I got a chance to and it's a very much without having a formal training but it's very much a, there's a counsellor type element to the job risk assessing and, and kind of building these relationships and things of that nature and building rapport and you know um, kind of talking people, talking these young people through their, their stresses and their, and their crises 
managing the crises. Um, so I had a chance to, to, to do a six week course in counseling, um, just like, you know, he's career. We've got a little budget There's you can go on a course, get out, get out of work for half a day. And from the first session, it was hooked in, locked in. And I think that's when I knew at that point, this is what I want to do. And in terms of psychology, who were, I mean, what, what was it about psychology? I mean, you, you mentioned a few things that, you know, everything was, they had great arguments and they had great uh, ways of formulating um, ideas. But, but what was it about psychology that, that really switched you on? Um, being a people person, always being a people person. I, I just think, I at the time was just a thing that they seemed, the psychologists that I would, you know, read or particularly the ones I would listen to as well, um, they seem to be a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of their arguments. Because um, like I mentioned, there were these African-American, um, in particular, um, psychologists. And so I was listening to information from that world, a kind of like a liberation or a kind of social political um, consciousness. And, but their arguments as clinical psychologists seem different to activists or you know, people that were very passionate meant well trying to make transformation but we're just yeah we're just we're just that like passionate maybe well-read in history maybe been some of them maybe need professional historians other academics but this particular discipline psychology represented like a systematic way of approaching problems and impacting transformation human transformation yeah self-development these kind of things so yeah and 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 was that your sort of central ethos when you were working um, with uh, with the young offenders? Transformation. Yeah the, yeah, the power of transformation. I think one of my um, heroes um, is El Hajj Malik Shabazz, better known as Malcolm X. And one of the things about his story is the transformation. Is that this is like a you know person that lived on the fringes of <laughs> of civility. Um, and living by his wits and living in a different world and just by the power of his will and just by motivation and, and having good counsel and instruction but the power of the human being to transform himself or to be transformed into you know like reinvent himself in a, in a really kind of like fundamental way not in a superficial way not not talking image consultancy but like at a, a kind of core level change their direction um, I've always found that like very fascinating very moving and um just something that i've you know that, that pulls me in and and even to this day i mean that I, I spoke about you know back in the mid 90s but even to this day there is always that it's, it's it never gets old it's always a new theory a new idea a new thing that's you know in the world of psychology or human development or self-development that you know always uh, you know there's always something that i find stimulating and, and, and was there someone in real life that you were in contact with that did that to you? you know, um, transformed you inside, truly, deeply. I don't know if there was any person, a particular person, but there were influences and different people that were around that um, encouraged me to, you know, sort of direction I was going with and encouraged me or sometimes would challenge me or hold me accountable. Um, which I found quite annoying at the time and quite difficult, but I, I think I stand to benefit in the, in the, you know, in the long term, I've, I've stood to benefit. But um, yeah, there have been some people that have, have played that kind of part in my life. Probably my mum, 
to be quite frank, is the most, you know, the most, uh, is the most kind of influential person in my life. Yeah, my mom, my mom, my mom and my dad actually, um, rest is so kind of had that uh, consistently challenging me, consistently calling me out, unashamedly <laughs> calling me out and putting me under the microscope every now and then. Not too much to leave me demoralized, um, but just enough to keep me, you know, like um, to keep me with the heat under my feet, you know, didn't, didn't burn, didn't cook, but just, you know, kept me simmering, always trying to um, better myself or strive or move in a certain direction. Yeah, that sort of yeah. sense of just just like slightly unsettled, just to sort of keep keep pushing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And exactly. and, and and the reason why you went into law, what was what was the story behind that? Oh yeah, so um, that comes back to um, Malcolm X. I think in school, I was always a person that liked to debate. I had an older brother that went to grammar school, and um, I was the one that didn't have. I possibly had the brains to go to grammar school right and that, or, but not the academic pedigree he was like well behaved and he went to grammar school but I was a sort of bright but naughty one. Oh, the one that never the report says could work harder could do better could you know just averaging out and so as an older sibling you kind of always aspire so I'd always want to debate with him and you know this guy studied chemistry and Greek and Latin and all these classical subjects at grammar school and I was just Felt a bit full of myself as a younger sibling, like I could match him intellect for intellect. Let's go at it. So it's quite older than me, actually, quite a few years older than me. But we would would always have this de- de- debates and arguments about all kind of stuff. I remember that as a child, and so there was that kind of I was a very talkative person as a youngest of the siblings. You know, you kind of like grow up and you have to find a way to get attention, right, or find a way to fit in. And I'm the youngest, so I worked hard at, at that. Very humorous comedy type personality as a child and I'm very driven to be a part of the mix and so that's where my my argumentation came from and so when I um, read Malcolm X and that had, and his story had his, his narrative had quite an impact on me and I always remember him saying that he, he wanted to be a lawyer and I liked I used to watch TV and watch you know a lot of the politicians were lawyers I said why are they all lawyers come from a law background what's the connection they're not they're, they're not graduates of politics they're graduates of law and then, you know, so it's the kind of link between law and politics and, and this kind of formulating your arguments and constructing your arguments and challenging people's arguments. So that was a kind of like attraction for the, for the law side of things. Yeah, I mean, it's a quite uh, adversarial um, ethos in the whole structure in, in law, you know, particularly, yeah. you know, the, the, the higher up you go. And I mean, I sort of relate to you because if you don't, become say naughty or you don't have an argument you're just kind of you disappear from the minds of even family members yeah you know you've got to uh, ruffle the feathers no absolutely I, I i i mean it's only now when i look back and process what i was doing that's what i come that's the kind of conclusion i come to analyzing my my, my, my motivations almost like retrospectively it's like i'm saying you know, I've had to find a way to matter, to be important, to be noticed. Um, was it narcissistic or elements of it? Um, probably not in the clinical sense, but just in the least, the, the Greek mythos sense of a bit, you know, full of myself. Yeah, I, I, I'll own that. I'll own that as a, as a younger sibling, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and when did the kind of penny drop and you thought to yourself, I mean, what, what, was there a particular sort of story or incident that, that, that happened uh, when you were studying law that you thought... No. 
this is no, this isn't going to work. No, it was more a series of circumstances that um, I had applied to. I was when I left university, I was um, still interested in becoming a lawyer, and actually went and studied politics for a year because I I had not applied to law school in time, and then within that time, um, I had a family crisis and it impacted my career chance or choices or you know what direction I was going to go in and um, I had kind of like not jumped into the real job market in a sense I was just working helping a friend run his his emerging business but because it gave me all the flexibility I needed and you know because of my family with the needs of my family I could like I'm not gonna work today I don't work for two days and you know this type of thing and I could be busy right now and so um, it's that suited the family situation that I was going through, but my career didn't launch. And then it got to a point where I said, look, I need to jump onto the, onto the literal formal job market. And there was an opportunity going at um, Feltham and uh, working in safeguarding. And I had no idea what safeguarding was and I never worked with anybody that was suicidal or self-harm or anything of this nature. But um being from South London, um, born in Brixton, you kind of grew up with that mentality that, like, if you say you can do it, you can do it. <laughs> you know, like, you, um, it's a tall order, but, you know, is, 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 is it look like a good job with prospects? You just come out of uni, like, all right, it's not the same subjects, but, I mean, you know, like, let's, let's do this. We can, you know, we can work with that, uh, the kind of clientele that was at that hotel, if I can use put it that way. So, like, I'll be able to do it. I was, like, in for a rude awakening when I actually did start the job, and I, I thought to myself, what have I signed up for? I'm well over my head. But I kept on um, splashing around and kept going at it until I found out, hey, I'm actually swimming. I'm not going to drown. But uh, the feeling of drowning and being overwhelmed and being welling over your head, yeah, that was, in the early stages, it was... Um, it was a big ask, and um, yeah, I was I was feeling the pace initially. Yeah, what what happened on the first day? Um, oh, on the first days, the easy days of shadowing and just walking around and saying hi to people and stuff like that. Um, not really, a, not really an issue. But it was when um, my manager at the time he uh, took off the you know the uh, these things you have when you ride your bike and yeah, yeah the stabilizers, stabilizers. When he took off the stabilizers and. You know what I mean? I was stabilised no more. It was kind of like go on the wings and, you know, kind of like mix and speak to the guys and this person at risk and check in with this person. And yeah, there was one person I needed to check in with. And when he actually said, um, you know, he asked a famous question that we're all so scared to um, kind of like ask when we're not familiar with working in the areas of suicide and self-harm is, do you want to end your life or do you want to kill yourself or something like that? And then when he said yes, categorically I do, um, yeah, it freaked me out. <laughs> That freaked me the hell out, and that was. But I think that was the, that was a crystallization of it all because um, I think that was like no, the baptism of fire, if I could put it that way, because kind of panicked, but went for support. But in a kind of long in in the overall long story of that that incident, it it gave me um, maybe the shaking up that I needed, like to you know say okay, you, this is this is what it can be like. And these are the steps that you need to do if, if you know, these things happen. Because there's so much training you can do. There's so much filling in forms and the paperwork and the 215 and the 512 and, you know, it's this subsection here. It's all that is good and role-playing conversations are good. But until you 
you know, the rubber hits the road when you are out on the front line, boom, in the room. And, you know, like you have to have those conversations, have those interactions, and it can go any way. That's when, it, that's the real development, right? That's the real learning. That's when it's, um, that's when it's really happening. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I was, stabilized very often. That's where I was. And uh, from there, I, I don't, I, it was difficult, but I don't think I look back. That, that particular incident will always stay with me as long as I've got a memory. As long as my memory serves me well, then I'll, I'll always retain that particular. I've, lots of different things happened there over the nine years I worked there, but that, that was the first time somebody had said anything. You know, I'd heard that and it just had a, a kind of impact on me. Yeah, I mean, you know, the visceral experiences, you can never, you can never forget them compared to the... The body theory. remembers, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the body yeah. never forgets. The body never forgets. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a special kind of memory there. Um, were there any kind of um, sort of nice clients, nice, I, I, I don't know what you call them over there, you know, that, that sort of you got really on with and it was like, yeah, you know, I'm really enjoying this kind of thing. Oh, no, there were, there were lots. I, I, uh, to be quite frank, there were more clients that, you, that I found I built a good rapport with, got along with, um, found their stories fascinating, very insightful young men, um, and surprisingly, I say surprisingly, um, I mean, obviously working in that world, it, it stopped being a surprise. But my initial thoughts were like, you know, these guys are all school dropouts or they're all, you know, not very bright guys, but there's some super smart guys. It's just that they chose or life circumstances kind of corralled them into avenues where they use their intellect in sort of deviant or antisocial ways or, you know, to crime. and to, But to be a career criminal, which some of them were, you know, there was a few hotheads who just were in custody for, you know, confrontation and, and risk poor, poor kind of like uh, impulse control. But I'd, I'd separate those from the kind of astute who violence only begets violence, but we will use violence, absolute violence when necessary to maintain business, but not for just being angry for angry sake. They don't have an anger management problem, but they're very calculated guys. Some of these guys were like really intelligent guys, really super clever guys that... You know, they knew about distribution, about risk assessment, about security. And they didn't always articulate in those words. But when they were talking about things, they, you know, they're in a, a tight space. I guess um, they felt there was something that they could trust. They would just, you know, talk about life and incidents, things that are going on. Um, like I said, it, was, it wasn't direct. Initially, I wasn't directly counselling them. It was more uh, sort of stress management and I've, I've maybe... There's something about being locked in a room potentially for 23 hours of the day. And then there's a, you ask to speak to somebody just to get out of your room and, you know, they will take you out of the room and maybe go in another room, but it's not the small box that you're in with more glass and it's lit up and the person seems warm. So they were more than happy to kind of like share, share their stories with me about whatever. And it was a, it was a kind of another education for me. In terms of, um, getting rid of your judgments and and um sort of preconceived ideas no definitely and just learning so much about the underworld or the street world or the other side of the train track that kind of like i'm not a choir boy but um but i made it an effort from a certain age to sort of you know i grew up in an area where there were lots of people that were from you know chose to dabble on that side of the track but kind of you know background i'm from parents it was almost like uh, we went near to the train track, but we never crossed over, <laughs> you know. You know, we've got people that we grew up with, close friends and associates that we go back, 
that maybe jumped over the other side of the trade track. So it was kept an association, but never really ventured into that world. So you, know. you, so, so you became more fascinated about it? Yeah, because it was almost like a world I could relate to, but um, not not having that knowledge, you know, not having that, let's say I might have known a few people who had a an A-level in that side of the track. But, you know, these were some people that were on their, you know, they were young men, but some of them were doing the degree, the degree course or some of them were postgrads in that world because they had been in that world from a very young age. That's one of the things that you learn is that um, you might meet somebody who's 20 years old and you think, oh, or 19 years old. So we figure, right, they're a teenager, right? Or they're just barely out of their 20. So they were young men. They might have been involved in a few things, but for only so long. But um, not really. Some of these guys have been involved in things of that nature since they were, they got initiated in when they were like 12 and 13 by some older you know, artists to be doing something for an older sibling, an older cousin, somebody else. And they've been in that world and around those settings for like near eight years, nine years. And wow. uh, it's, it's the kind of world that it makes people grow up very, on one level, it can make those involved in that world grow up very quickly. So there's an element that is very mature. And then there's another social aspect of that world that arrests people's development. So once, so see them in their comfort zone and they're quite mature and then take them outside of their comfort zone and social setting and they can be quite goofy or quite, uh, yeah, yeah, quite immature or just not adept, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's quite fascinating because it, it shows you that we've got a lot of facets to our, uh, to our being and um, definitely yeah the human being is not one dimensional the human being is definitely not one very very complex that thing that we call a human being is very very complex yeah yeah and 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 sort of you know you said that that um you know you were um in front of this client who 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 talked about suicide and and then that got you sort of interested in you know the whole um essentially psychotherapy world yeah well i gotta mention with with the um the the Psychologist that I'd heard over the years mm-hmm. that, um, that garnered my that garnered my interest, um, and having an opportunity to go and study counselling, that I think that was that was a real the, the real switch. But I, but I was counselling in the loose sense of the word long before I ever went on a counselling course because by the nature of the job that you do when you work in safeguarding, um, you you hear people's stories, you speak to people, you listen to them. And sometimes in that listening to them in some form or fashion, you help them to make sense of what's scrambling around in their head. Um, when they're in a very tight corner, sometimes you have a man, say man, a young man who's 18 years old or sometimes under 18 who has just been sentenced or just been convicted of murder, for example, and he doesn't know quite where the future's taken him, but he knows at least he'll be in a surrounding like this for the next 12 years, absolute minimum. But will it be 12 or 14? Will it be 14 or 16? So when you're working with people like that, um, or who have just come back from the O'Bailey and have been told, you know, that you will not be able to apply for parole for a minimum of 17 years. And when you're 17 years old, yeah, it gets real. So when you're asked to come and see that young person or they've phoned, you know, they've phoned your officer said, you know, Smith, he wants to have a word. He's just come back from the old Bailey. He looks, he's pretty bad. He got 17. 
and you go and open his door and take him out to speak. At that point, not being a trained counsellor, but there is something taking place when you, you know, helping that person to get to grips and come to terms with, you know, what life has served up for them or what situation they found themselves in. And then doing the course, what kind of um, sort of system really helped you? Um, I think the person-centred modality was really the bedrock of my my practice. Um, so when I studied counselling um, at diploma level, we covered uh, we covered like REBT and we covered um, cognitive so like cognitive therapy with Beggs, um and then the rational emotional behaviour therapy with, with Albert Ellis, and we covered per, a lot of person centred with Rogers, existential, um, some Gestalt. However, the default setting was always. Um, person-centered and you know for the non-psychologists out there listening to this what what do you mean by personal person-centered okay so all right so person-centered is um a form of counseling psychology psychotherapy where um there isn't a whole load of techniques and and um it's more of a non-directive form of counseling where the counselor essentially responds to what the client brings and main thing that the council is trying to do is to um, extend what they call the core conditions um, just basically the council trying to be genuine they're trying to um, extend like a lot of empathy towards a client and um, the aim is to do that in a way that is non-judgmental really essentially um, they're not leading and they're not judgmental and they're just being in that certain space and uh, it's quite a prof- profound form of therapy can be quite frustrating for some clients. Um, it can be quite frustrating for some practitioners and there's many roles to Damascus, so it doesn't suit all, but um, I've found that, that to, to have, as much as I've learned different modalities and I wouldn't have to do a, 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 you know, um, a master's in uh, REBT, um, cognitive behavior therapy, I actually still think that person-centered is like my default setting. So if I used to stall, I use existential i use um cognitive therapy or rbt's former cbt and um even some transactional analysis ideas i might be influenced and informed by a whole load of different ideas but i find that um if the client work is i'm finding extremely difficult i just naturally resort to a person-centered modality to almost recalibrate before i may come up with another strategy or before say okay i can maybe change the modality and use different techniques in the next you know i found out some vital information that now enables me to want to go in a certain direction but um yeah when the work is very intense very difficult maybe stuck i can always find myself without even giving it a second thought going back into person it. and that's in a way sort of coming back to yourself again going back inside within you and listening to what's what's um talking inside of you in a way mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, beauty of person-centered is it relies heavily on your sixth sense your intuition your gut feeling and um, I think as human beings we have it's in a modern world or at least in a western society we we not discredited I don't know if that's the right word but just kind of excuse me ignored 
just not listened to, you know, like, um, first, uh, our intuition, our gut feelings, they, you know, and our imagination, we can, um, the power of fantasies and stuff like that. You know, actually, there's a way of utilizing those you know, that, that can be very rich and we, we sometimes miss out on those. So, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't give us all the answers. There's nothing to say that, you know, being rational and, 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 and is, is not, you know, they're not either or, but it's just that, you know, we shouldn't ignore our, our gut feelings because I've always found, you know, 99% of the time that it's played out in some ways. It's been proven right or been proven, if not correct, but relevant. Let me put it that way. That you know, something that my gut feeling told me doesn't mean it, I, I'm, I'm absolutely 100% correct. I could find out that I was I was incorrect, but by telling me, by me experiencing that and being in tune and actually being aware of that, it still informed me in some kind of way. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think. Um, I mean, I say I think, but you know, I'm not trying to think. You know, that's the thing. And um, but, you know, I mean, we grew up in this sort of whole whole science of science where where science is is the dominant religion, so to speak. And that's all very rational. Uh, but mm-hmm. we forget that, you know, we, we, we have this special uh, superpower, uh, which we can't put our finger on, but we can we can definitely feel it, you know, being mm-hmm. around other people and sort of other things and, and, and just other concepts and other ways of um you know other constructs and, and narratives um i mean uh, the person that kind of brought me towards that was was really cg young you know the importance of of dreams and fantasies and you know clairvoyancy and you know the uh, um the irrationality of of being and the absurdity of being as well um within a a relatively scientific construct, you know, you know, there is some, some framework there, but it's not too rigid. Um, I mean, we know what rigid constructs are like, you know, being scientists and being uh, therapists, you know, there is a, uh, a path that, that we can go down, but at the same token, you do need to come, you know, go off the, uh, go off the, uh, the path. Uh, you know the well-trodden path yeah yeah i'd agree with that i definitely agree with that yeah yeah and 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 i mean you're quite popular with uh with the ladies now i heard uh, is that right <laughs> is that right um possibly possibly but for the for the, the reasons of my podcast i i'll take it in that context um yeah, I, I do a podcast, um, It Takes Two, yeah. on uh, on my channel, Humayas TV. And um, I've been speaking lately on a lot of different platforms. And it's been like a lot of ladies who are hosting all these different platforms and forums and IG Live and with all these different thousands of followers and stuff like that, that I've just been gifted to, to, to speak on. But I think... Um, can I say love is in the air? Like, I mean, it, it um, so it's important. Romantic, you know, um, intimate relationships, marriage, you know, these things are, they're always relevant, so relevant. People are either, you know, in a long term, was just out of a long term, hoping to get into a long term or, or, or just had a one night stand or hoping to get a one night stand or, you know, so 
you know, there's always something going on in that department, you know. Um, so people tend to find it quite interesting and women team, seem to, women love love, right? So. Yep, 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 they do. Yeah, yeah, it's a very, um, yeah, it's very enticing for them. It's very enticing for us. And then we all meet Absolutely. in the middle. You know? Absolutely, yeah. Win-win. It's win-win. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, it's it's um it's good but at the same token it's it's sort of bad or you know there's a lot of conflict there there's a lot of issues that that go on in this so you know it is a big challenge um mm-hmm. but that's never changed you know it'll always be there you know there's nothing special about this particular time that makes these things super challenging it's always been challenging yeah i mean people a lot of people are speaking about um the lockdown but i mean has it created something that wasn't there or did it just speed it up sort of thing yeah you know i mean i, I, I don't think it speeds up or or slows it down it, it's always it's always been uh an issue of discussion enjoyment pain hurt you know all the mm-hmm. emotions are there so i mean it's sort of but but for some reason you know you've got that kind of Thing with the ladies you know there's there's something there about that what do you think oh, it's, I'll, I'll, uh, i'm gonna take your word for that i'm gonna take your word for that. Take... where do you think that comes from how do you mean could you elaborate i don't know i mean you know you've got the switch mate you know there's a switch there oh oh in that sense um no I, i'm genuinely not not sure but uh i just think that um I have a lot of... Is it the glasses? Is it the glasses? Is it the haircut? <laughs> I'm harmless. Yeah, is it the harmless? No, I, I actually just think that, um, like, possibly I may find it... There's a side... I'm not, I don't want to say I'm in touch with my feminine side, but I just feel like I can connect with women. Yeah. I, you know, I just can connect with women. Um, I don't think I've allowed my... And I, I you know, I, I, I am somebody that pushes weights and... I'm into the whole alpha or actually I hate that word alpha, but I'm into the masculine men thing, but I still don't allow that to, um, uh, you know, it doesn't give me an inability. That side doesn't give me an inability to connect with women in a, in a, in a profound way or, you know, or some women at least, you know, so yeah, I think I can, I can strike a chord. Yeah. I mean, you you know, you don't pull your punches when it comes to masculinity. And, you know, you're not someone who would mince his words when it comes to masculinity and sort of tread carefully. You know, you say it like it is. And I think that's one of the maybe one of the reasons why, um, you know, the feminine side of things, uh, you know, like that sort of opposite attraction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Possibly, possibly, because I am I, um, what I've discovered as I've matured is that um how much women appreciate um, honesty, authenticity, how much they, uh, you know, how much women or many women really value that, really value that. So, um, you know, that's just me as a person trying to be authentic as best as I can and um, be integral. And apart from yourself, any other sort of male authentic individuals that that you want us to sort of look towards and and learn more from? Um, there are, I've had many teachers, um, and I mean, not people necessarily I've sat with, but 
uh, even like spiritually, I mean, you know, religion uh, plays a central part for myself, spirituality. And um, I know we live in, a, in an era of secularism, but, you know, spirituality feeds me and, you know, uh, Islam is very, you know, relevant in my life. And, you know, there are many people in, in the Islamic narrative that are important, but at the center of it all, in terms of the human beings is, you know, it's the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. So, you know, that's a, a, man, among, a man amongst men. So, you know. And, you know, he had, he, he had a lot of wives. He had Absolutely. a lot of wives. And, Absolutely. And I don't know how he did it. How, how, how do you think he did it? What, what, what was his sort of, sort of three main um, pillars or bedrocks that sort of allowed him to be, to be the man that he was amongst so many um, wives? I would, I would probably, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use my layman because I'm no spiritual teacher, but I would say that his deep connection with, with God, you know, his spirituality is a, a bedrock. Um, I think that his integrity as a person, you know, like his honesty and his, his character, but also um, he's quite sensitive. He was a quite sensitive person, quite a sensitive person. So that's that strength, but with a sensitivity combination, possibly gave him that, um, that, that ability. Because they, they say that some of the Meccans, I think some of the history books say some of the Meccans would deride him and say that he, you know, he does effeminate things because he was kind to children or, you know, getting up and giving his seat to his daughter and things of this nature when in, in public gatherings. And so those were taboos in that society. But I think those, are, those things were, were part of his absolute, you know, strength, you know. Is 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 that something that we can develop for for ourselves or for the younger men um, in today's society? Is that is, is is that something that's important? I think so. I think so. I've got very strong feelings about that. Um, I teach, you know, some disaffected young men from the inner cities on a on a mentoring scheme, a right to passage type of scheme, and one of them there's modules about you know visionary goal setting and you know being um, self determination. All these different you know, um, goals, aims, aspirations. However, respect for womanhood is pivotal. And um, it shouldn't, you know, um, in this era where sometimes it seems like there's a gender war going on, you know, we as men shouldn't feel demeaned in any way or like we lose anything by having respect for womanhood. And it doesn't mean not holding women accountable or the women can do no wrong, but it, it you know, it generally means like, uh, you know, not having that, as best as we can, that, that sexism in us, that kind of, um, you know, misogyny in us or, or challenging ourselves, questioning ourselves, being open into that, you know, open to, if you kind of like question where some of our motivations or behaviours have come from, some of our values, some of our views and perspectives, not to be afraid of that, to question that. Yeah, yeah. I, you, know, you, you know, there is a bigger narrative that's sort of telling us one thing, but it's important to, to have our own, um, internal compass or narrative that gives us uh, something that allows us to um, to move forward and you know to be inspired and, and uh, transform into something um, that's beneficial for society, um, which isn't always celebrated, you know, in, in sort of mainstream media, really. Hardly ever. Yeah. Yeah. Hardly ever. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, it's a short podcast today. Um, what kind of advice would you have given yourself, um, you know, growing up as a, uh, as a teenager in, uh, in South London? What would, what would be your, you know, your, your three top tips you would have given yourself back then? No, three top tips. Three top tips. Wow, that's a really good question. Um, first one that comes to mind is to be a little bit more thick-skinned. I think as a teenager, um, I was like most teenagers, but very sensitive to other people's views, opinions on myself as I was finding myself. So I would be encouraging younger me to be a little bit more thick-skinned um to believe in myself more um because that's the only way you kind of like develop your confidence is to just you know believe in yourself and I think the other thing would be to forgive myself forgive myself because we do at least I did um and still do sometimes um chastise ourselves heavily for our errors and, um, you know, it's just like we learn to forgive other people <laughs> and let it go. Um, yeah, I think it would be beneficial for, for to, to, to learn how to forgive, let go. Hey, that was a mistake. As uh, one of my young scholars said, to, said today, um, I don't allow what happened what happened yesterday to have to determine how I feel today. In the, in the context of if something negative happened yesterday, hey, that was yesterday. It's a new day, new opportunity. Let's keep it moving. And I think, yeah, I would try to, I would, I would give myself that advice. Yeah. Yeah. It, it makes a lot of sense. Um, how, how, how can people get hold of you? Do, do you have, um, you know, sort of organizations or, or um, websites? Yeah. Or? I've got an, um, I got an organization um, called the, my private practice called Emotional Insight Consultancy. So, so if anybody wants to put that in the engine, Emotional Insight, they should be able to get, my um my contact details or if they put Hume as in facebook um i'm on facebook as well so with all my contact details i post videos and you know, if anybody wants to reach out on message or anything like that for any to, to contact me then yeah by all means and and the podcast as well yes yes and the podcast is there Humeas tv it takes two it's a flagship but there's a few other bits and pieces interesting bits and pieces up there from radio interviews and you know other platforms as well uh Hugh, it's been an absolute pleasure listening to you today and um keep going with the ladies as, as they say <laughs> <laughs> dr Heidi, you're gonna get me in trouble you're gonna get me in trouble but um no it's been a pleasure thank you for for the invite um it's a very very um thought-provoking for myself actually some questions you pose so yeah no, thank you thank you so much